This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we leave the French Revolution behind and move into the modern era. How did we handle our newfound land of freedom and independence? How did it impact our theology and our ecclesiology? All right, we have uh, your typical presentation. We're going to finish up the timeline that we have had for the last two episodes, and we're going to start to uh, head into the next timeline that we have for uh, the next little part of your presentation. So that's where, that's how we're moving here. As the age of the revolution changed the cultural setting for Christendom, there was a new push to get our bearings as a faith movement. For almost 1,400 years, the world of Christendom had enjoyed being the privileged default of culture. If you unplugged the Western world and plugged it back in, the default setting would have blinked Christian. But now, with the rise of the Age of Enlightenment, Christendom's white-knuckle grip on theology, creeds, doctrinal truths did not age well. As the world became more and more knowledgeable, more and more educated, more and more literate, simply affirming creedal beliefs wasn't holding a candle to the scientific method. But before we talk about science, we should talk about this new culture of independence, Brent Billings the impact it had on our own shores here in hashtag America. We made a declaration about it. We made a declaration. This movement of culture away from Christianity had a positive effect for Christendom as a whole. In an effort to regain what was being lost, Protestant believers fell into what is often referred to as the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening, you might remember, is usually attributed to the rise of Methodism, We talked about John Wesley, I believe that was last episode, mid-1700s. This this great time of revival was ushered in throughout throughout North America, throughout Europe, and through what we commonly know, uh, this this great awakening took place in what we commonly know as camp meetings. I have been to a camp meeting. You have been to a camp meeting? Yeah. Pretty recently. Learned something new about you every day, Brent Billings. Yeah. Yeah? How'd that go? uh, my good friend Abby, her uh, dad's Baptist church, they oh. had a camp meeting. Oh, wow. They had, they had me come and uh, take some pictures. Wow, that's cool. I love it. Okay. These camp meeting revivals, at least back in the day, I don't know what it was like when you went there, but these revivals became a time for denominations to come together, enjoy fellowship, worship, and preaching. Such a focus and desire to experience true confession and true repentance would lead to great times of spiritual revival and movement. That's pretty much what it was. Yeah, you felt that? Yep. Well, that's kind of cool. Love that. Uh, many attribute the rise of, Prod- uh, of Pentecostalism, what we know as Pentecostalism. Um, we got Pentecostal listeners, so definitely not using that term in a negative, positive way, just what it is, the rise of Pentecostalism. Uh, many attribute that rise to these experiences, where the Holy Spirit seemed to be poured out in abundance. What is widely accepted, and you can kind of feel that, Brent, like, up to this point, we've been talking a lot about science and mathematics and academics and systems and Protestant reformations. And it's like, okay, but where's the art? Where's the beauty? Where's the, quite literally, where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? And so these camp meetings and this this independence that was starting to thrive, the personal individual wanting to follow God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might, it was leading to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And there was a whole movement to reclaim that. Something had been lost. What is widely accepted as the first camp meeting 
uh, and it probably wasn't, but what is kind of widely accepted as the first one is held in Kentucky in 1801. It's a good year for your first one, 1801. I like that. Would set the stage for an, an, an invigorated and a passionate movement of Protestant parishioners. But it was the same awakening, coupled with the cultural movement of America towards freedom and independence, that led to Christianity having had this jettison of denominationalism. As many denominations were attempting to hold on to their imperial moorings through the use of creeds and belief statements, uh, think of a more like colonial version of church membership. Like if you were to think of like the Westminster Confession, you will affirm this creed and this confession in order to be a part of the tribe here. There, there were entire groups that began kicking against colonialism as it was experienced in the North American church. And realize this is not like, this is not like American colonialism. This is like a European colonialism that brought, that was brought over. Because if you came over from, if you're a, a German who migrated, you probably migrated with other what, Brent? With other Germans. With other Germans. And that whole group was probably Lutheran. Lutheran. If you weren't Catholic, if you were Protestant. And so when you set up your colony, you all got there and you set up a colony together. And that colony was largely had what kind of people as citizens? German Lutherans. German Lutherans. Now, if you came from, uh, what, were we, what were we just talking about the other day? Um, if you came from Scotland. Scotland. As a Presbyterian? Presbyterian. You set up a Presbyterian church. Um, I was raised in the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, which we always touted was the oldest denomination in America, one of the first ones to be set up here. Um, oh, it was the first one I was reading about. I think it was uh, it was the Puritans, maybe? Well, they were definitely at play. I don't know, denominationally, how that all worked or played into the denominational landscape. But... I, think they were, I think they were fighting against some of uh, the Anglican beliefs. Sure. And that's why they came. I think there, were, there was a group of them in England and then another group maybe over in the Netherlands or something. Yeah. And they yeah. all got together and yep. came over to America. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was a very, it was a very Dutch Reformed church that I grew up in uh, in that movement. So absolutely. And so you had these um, very geographical, uh, national, colonial identities based on where you came from and how you migrated over. But then you, you also landed in America where there was, you brought your culture with you, but you were also building something brand new. And that brand new thing was a freedom and it was an independence and it was, it was something that was alive and it was different than the thing that you brought with you. And so those things began to clash. You would use these old systems that you used to have over in Europe in your church system, but everything around you in the American culture that you were settling and colonizing was totally different and, and they weren't working well. It was like trying to plant uh, uh, some kind of plant. It was like trying to plant something that wasn't going to grow in that climate. And so they, they were having all kinds of fits. And so there is, again, and this is a thread that I'm going to follow. I grew up in the Reformation movement. I could follow that thread, but I wasn't trained in my Reformation background that I was raised in. Um, so I was trained in the Stone-Campbell movement, what we, what we sometimes call the Restoration movement, the Christian churches, Churches of Christ, that movement. That's where I'm trained. So that's where I'm going to stick with because that's where most of my expertise lies. was raised in the Reform movement, trained and pastored in the Restoration Movement. So this Stone-Campbell Movement was one of those um, blossoming new things as we struggled with independence. 
It was started when a guy by the name of Barton Stone, it's called the Stone Campbell Movement after Barton Stone, uh, a recently ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church, was asked to sign the Westminster Confession before he could receive the Eucharist. It's a somewhat simplified version of the story, but um, uh, I don't think I gave you this book, Brent, but we'll we'll link this book in the in the show notes. Uh, Unity in Truth, Union in Truth by North. Uh, it's not like it's a horribly compelling read, but it was my text that I used in college to lead me through the history of the Restoration Movement, if anybody's really interested. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't look at that book and be like, that was entertaining, but it was informative. So there you go. So, so this uh, Barton Stone, he was asked to join, uh, sign the Westminster Confession before he could receive the Eucharist, and appalled by the use of confession and doctrine in this way, he thought, no, we should have to sign the document before they can receive the bread and the juice. Stone joined others with similar encounters to restore a sense of the faith experienced in revivals, a faith they associated with the early church in the book of Acts. Uh, they wanted to restore that to Christianity in, in America. So what about Campbell? So, yeah, and I'm going to, a lot of people are going to be, listen, we have a ton of, for all, for all of our listeners, we have listeners all over the board, from Greek Orthodox to Reformed folks and to Baptists and and Anabaptists. And we have uh, our largest listenership by far lands in the Restoration Movement. Um so there's going to be a lot of listeners that are like, oh my gosh, you just did us a total disservice by not talking about more of our history. And trust me, I would love to. And maybe we'll do a later podcast in uh, you know, session six when we talk about random things here and there. Maybe we'll dive in deeper to the history of the Restoration Movement and why I love it and why I still love the ideals. I often hate its application, but I love its ideals that it stood for. <laughs> we have a lot of things wrong in the application of our movement. But nevertheless, I digress. We're not going to get into that here. But yeah, this movement, you ask about Campbell uh, Stone. Uh, he's doing he's doing part, uh, his work in part of the country. At, in, in the meantime, there's somebody having a very similar experience, Thomas Campbell. Um, he has a son named Alexander Campbell who actually stays over in Europe, eventually comes back over. They've been having very similar experiences on both sides of the Atlantic. They're both afraid to even talk about it. They end up talking about it. These groups end up kind of uniting. It's kind of a, as Christianity is splintering, one of the beautiful things about the story of the Restoration Movement is there was all these people experiencing the same thing from different denominational splinters, and they actually joined together. So as everybody's splitting apart, this movement, at least for a period of time, drew everyone together. Now, they lost that beauty in their movement after a few decades. But at the origins, it's drawing Stone and Campbell together. Eventually, they end up coming together and uniting this movement into the Stone-Campbell movement. So uh, two different sides you look through. I'm from the branch that often comes at it from much more of a Campbell, but there's this real beauty that comes at it from more of a Stone perspective. All kinds of wonderful nuances. Well, we don't have to get into it too much here. I just, you know, it is the Stone-Campbell movement. Yes. I just had to ask about Campbell. Absolutely. Well, because I don't know anything about it. Thank you for letting me not get drug all the way into a three-hour episode <laughs> on restoration history. Three hours? Don't make any promises like that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so so there we go, and well, and there's a whole lot more we could talk about. Um, and and yeah, half of our listeners, or more than that, are getting really mad that I'm not spending more time on that. But I don't. We have a lot of other listeners, so I'm not going to spend time just focusing on that part of the history. In the light of all of this, it's not a coincidence that other movements started at the same time as well. Driven by the same disgust in the direction of Christianity, Joseph Smith received his calling in the movement that we know as Mormonism, the Latter-day Saints, the LDS movement. 
that started at the same point of history. Uh, we also see the work of Ellen G. White, uh, John Darby, and a guy by the name of Charles Russell, who is responsible for the Jehovah's Witness movement. All three of them are Jehovah's Witness? Uh, not necessarily. Ellen G. White's going to be more Seventh-day Adventist. Um, John, I, this is really hard. I try not to link these names together. Obviously, many of us view... I'm not going to try and make these decisions for everybody. I really hate labels. I don't think labels are all that helpful. But many of us view some of these movements as definitely more cultic and and not orthodox Christian movements at all. Um, I try to be... Um, I definitely think there are some key distinctions. I'm going to put it that way. Um, but my whole family, uh, everybody's going to get really confused by this. <laughs> by this. <laughs> They're going to be like, wait a minute. We've already been confused that you were raised in a Christian home, but you're Jewish by heritage. But now I'm going to tell you that my whole family history, um, my whole family is very, very committed LDS, very, very committed Mormon. Not your immediate family. Not my immediate family, but everybody outside of my immediate family on my dad's side is very, very committed LDS. So I try to honor them as much as I can. I do think there are some very, I don't know how many LDS listeners we might have to our podcast that have made it all the way to this point. Um, I, I try to be generous and as hospitable as I can be. I do think there are very, very key distinctions between what I'm going to call orthodoxy in this case um, and love to have those conversations. But I'm going to – I try to be generous with the way I do my podcast. Um, I think there are some very key distinctions about Charles Russell and Jehovah's Witness. Um, are there some distinctions with Ellen G. White, Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, sure, but do I want to put them in the same category? I don't know. I don't think categories are all that helpful. I just don't find them to be helpful. However, objective, critical thinking, that's helpful. I like that. So I want to encourage a lot of that. But yes, so there's a whole conversation about Ellen G. White, John Darby, and Charles Russell. They are not all linked to Jehovah's Witness. Charles Russell will be linked to the movement of Jehovah's Witness. Um, Ellen G. White and John Darby were in the same conversation. Different things happened as far as the world of eschatology. I'm not sure how much we'll get into that. A lot of things going on. We could, we could, we could talk about a lot of things, um, but it's a good clarifying question because I don't want to lump them all into the same camp. I don't really know anything about most of these names, so I don't know. I don't know who goes yeah. with who, if at all. You know? Yeah, and there's such good conversations to be had. And I don't. I, I know we have some of the Adventists that listen to our podcast, so I don't want to offend them. But um, Alan G. White uh, was responsible for um, whatever you want to call that. I don't know the language that they like to use about it. She had her own revelation. She was kind of seen as the prophet for that movement. Um, she was connected with Darby. Um, through their connection, there was also another connection with Schofield. Uh, people might be familiar with the Schofield Bible. Um, it was the, one of the most largely mass-printed, mass-published, mass-produced Bible. It was, it was like the first study Bible with notes in the margins and ways to help you read the Bible. Um, in my opinion, the Schofield Bible wrecked Christian theology in the modern era. Uh, it, 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 it propagated some teachings that I just think were somewhat nonsense, and we are now still deconstructing those things. Um, when people have an understanding of the rapture, um, think Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins in the Left Behind series. Um, not that I want to offend a whole bunch of people, but probably at this point, we're probably too late for that. But um, uh, that whole eschatological worldview came out of this Schofield Bible, and, and, and Christianity as a whole kind of accepted it as a default understanding of theology. And it was not the orthodox default coming up to this point. 
So it's actually a really key point of history that it's like, oh, do I get bogged down here? I don't know. So there you go. There's a little bit of, we got into it a little bit. How about that? Does that sound I, okay? I will say, uh, maybe the only thing that I know about Seventh-day Adventists is that at one point, uh, I think when I was in high school, um, I was doing something in my non-denominational church and we were partnered with the Seventh-day Adventist church. Sure. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. Absolutely. And listen, there's a ton of things that we have. We get, we have some listeners to our podcast. Our commitment to Sabbath really resonates with the Seventh-day Adventist worldview. Um, the way we value the Old Testament very much resonates with the Seventh-day Adventist worldview. Um, I don't care for the eschatology. Um, uh, the application of how we engage the law is a little tricky to me. But there's a lot of things that um, resonate. So it's not, just a crazy, it's not just a crazy group of people over there. They're just people. Right. They have convictions, just like all of us. Listen, people think the Stone Camel movement are crazy. <laughs> and they're not all that wrong. I don't know if we know that inside the movement, but it's true. And it's important to remember, uh, going all the way back to Genesis 1, that we all have the breath of God in us. It, it's a key distinction. Same invitation, trust the story. An immense amount of potential in all of us. It's so true. Which is why those categories just don't... Help. Is this a cult? Is it not a cult? Is it orthodox? Is it not orthodox? That's just not helpful. It's not helpful because that's not how the story works. Nevertheless, note that all these conversations, all these movements that we've been talking about here, all of them, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Restoration Movement, uh, all these movements are capitalizing, albeit unintentionally, uh, on a newfound culture of freedom and independence to start a new revived expression of a faith that they felt was corrupted and dying. So all these movements are capitalizing on this American experience that's kind of bristling and pushing against this colonial denominationalism, and they want something new, and they want something free, and they want something individual, and they want something independent. And all these movements are saying, we have that for you. Come experience this new independent spiritual faith. And really is it kind of a function of geography too, because if you're in England and you don't like what the Anglican church is doing, well, where are you going to go? Right. If you're in America and you don't like what the, uh, whoever right is doing, you just shift over to the West a little bit. Right. Absolutely. There's plenty of room. You got a village right down the road. Um, that is a totally different worldview. Now it's kind of harder to get adopted into it, but it's still, you are rubbing shoulders and much more of a diverse uh, culture than you were previously. So now on the scientific front, uh, things are not turning out well for any form of Christendom, trying to hold on to the doctrinal confessions and creedal understandings of their faith. In the middle of the 19th century, Charles Darwin began his famous work. Uh, Karl Marx was pursuing new political ideals, and both seemed to work against a Christian worldview. While many of these ideas were critiqued within the Christian worldview, some critical thinkers in Christianity were affirming certain components of those worldviews. The need for social vigilance was championed by people like William Booth, uh, a, a Methodist pastor is what he was. He founded the Salvation Army. We're familiar with the Salvation Army. Uh, Booth would become one of the lead thinkers, shaping Christianity's social consciousness toward the turn of the century giving to rise to what many people call the social gospel. While the term has a negative connotation in many conservative evangelical circles, like I was raised in, 
The movement was simply trying to recapture the practical and misplaced emphasis on caring for the poor, the marginalized and in our increasingly industrialized world, where the gap between rich and poor was rapidly increasing. Does that sound a little Bema-esque to you, Brent? A little bit. A little bit. A little bit of the margins, a little bit of the mums there, a little bit of the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Man, I sure hope that when we hear that, we think that is, in many ways, the gospel. Is it the whole gospel? Well, we can talk about that, whatever. But it is, there is a very much a social component to the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, These were some of the same things that modernity and all of its socio-political growth pains was trying to articulate as well in the political realm. The secular aspect of this cultural growth curve is known as secular humanism. And after we finish fighting World War I, it's interesting how war always hinders progress. Shocker there. War always seems to get in the way. Darn it, every time. Uh, I jest. Christendom in North America turned its attention to fighting those secular ideals. Once we were done fighting our wars, we started fighting those secular ideals. Like a lit powder keg, the famous Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee, led to the eruption of Christian fundamentalism. Christians immediately saw themselves in a culture war with secular humanism. The problem is that this rings incredibly reminiscent of anything else we talked about recently, Brent? Yes. Like like what? Copernicus, perhaps? Yeah. Galileo. Galileo. Yeah, absolutely. Remember when they went from the geocentric to heliocentric and everybody thought they were crazy and it turns out, well, there were some things that we needed to learn. It seems that we may be in danger even today of misidentifying our enemy and the truth that we should be fighting to preserve. But with all the splintering and division of Christianity, it becomes harder and harder for us to learn from our mistakes. So is it all going to be hopeless? Well, we've got one more period of history to look at before we start to close up our time here. And this is kind of that same question I had in the the last episode uh, or two episodes ago where we're talking about like how much influence did... uh, did a Catholic theologian from France have with everyone else when you have a hundred different movements or a thousand different movements of people? Right. How, yep. How much can anyone have any influence? Yeah. And now that, that, that influence is definitely starting to wane and it's just become something else. In those early days, those things were more connected. And then as this, this thing keeps just splintering and drifting apart, that conversation just becomes its own conversation and kind of loses that same next-door neighbor influence it used to have. Every group has to make their own set of mistakes and learn from them independently, and it's maybe a little bit more of a mess. Right. Yep, Yep. you're right. All right. Uh, Well, if you have any questions about the show, you can go to baymodiscipleship.com, get in touch with us there. Thanks for joining us on the Baymod Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.